Well, that's what we're doing today. We are talking about Jesus, who Jesus is, what his name is, what is his identity, what has he come to do. And we have been in this, this series on the book of Mark since January of 2018. And we have been building and building and building for all of these 15 months or so, so far. And this whole story is almost coming to the ultimate climax of the resurrection. But what we have here in the story that we will see today is a very, very significant moment of how Jesus speaks and what Jesus says. And I ask you this question here as we get into this moment is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? It matters. It matters a lot. And we're going to see it here. So if you have your Bible and you haven't yet, you can turn to Mark 14. All right? Mark 14, the beginning of the New Testament. It's really like really kind of close to the end of the Bible when you look at it. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, that's where we're at. Mark chapter 14. And as you're getting there, what kind of setting the scene of where we're at right now is we, we have seen Jesus has already uh, just had the whole Last Supper with his disciples. We've been there. They left that Last Supper and went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is... They led Jesus away to the high priest. And all... ...and make decisions about all sorts of different things, but that's the group that they're leading Jesus towards, and we will have this scene of Jesus's Jewish trial, his religious trial, he will have a civil trial or two as well, and, but here's where we have this trial about to happen. Then, verse 54 says, Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. That's just going to be a little foreshadowing to next week's sermon, okay? Next week's sermon is going to be all about how Peter responds in this moment. But it also says here that they took him to the courtyard of the high priest. Let's do a little uh, sort of geography, you know, location work here, all right? For us to understand, this is an aerial view, modern day. This isn't from back then, okay? But this is a modern day view of the city of Jerusalem. And the old city of Jerusalem is here. You can see this wall, this old wall around what we call the old city of Jerusalem, all right? We have the Garden of Gethsemane over here. So this is where Jesus has been praying and he was betrayed and arrested. This is the Mount of Olives comes up here, okay? So that's where he's been betrayed and arrested. Now he's about to be led away. Now here's the thing. 
there's a place where the Sanhedrin is supposed to do trials. They're supposed to conduct these sorts of things. First of all, uh, is the time, actually. This is the middle of the night. All this is happening at night. These trials are not supposed to happen at night. They're supposed to happen in the day, and they're supposed to happen in one of the courts of the Temple Mount. This is the Temple Mount here, this area. It's a large pad, a large um, pad that has been this huge area that has the temple upon it. Now sits this Dome of the Rock, this, this site of, of the Muslim faith. But, and then there's a mosque here as well, but this is where the temple stood. And in one of the courts outside of, of the actual temple proper is where they would conduct these trials. However, that's not where they're going. They instead bypass this place that's close by, and they go all the way up here, which in this area is where the courtyard of the high priest would have been in that time. So they come over here, and this is not where they're supposed to be. But somehow, all of the Sanhedrin knew to be there. And you'll see that they also have a bunch of people ready to testify in the middle of the night at the wrong location. Let's continue with our story. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so verse 55. Now, the chief priests, the whole council, that Sanhedrin, kept trying. And by the way, that whole council means they had a quorum. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that. They had every single member there, but they had a quorum of them, because we believe there were some that disagreed. Anyway, the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying... We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest himself, the high priest, stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him this, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. This is the religious trial of Jesus Christ. This is this moment where he is asked this such an important, important question. I thought it might be helpful, though, for us to kind of get a little bit of a glimpse of what at least some people, when they made the film Passion of the Christ, thought when they, uh, when they filmed their movie of what this scene would look like. So let's go ahead and check that out now. Eshalak, Yeshwansaret, Amarlana, En Ant Bar Elachachai 
that scene it's just it's disturbing even to see how people would treat jesus but if you don't believe him if it's not true maybe that is what he deserves but here's the thing it is it is true and that's the beauty of the resurrection and that's what we see but they come against him with lies they come against him with false testimony and what I say is that no lie against Jesus will stand. You can try to bring a false accusation against Jesus, but that's, that's not going to work. That's not what, sort of how they get him, so to speak, is not through these made-up accusations. That's not what happens. All these things are inconsistent. And what they're trying to get him for, they're trying to get him on uh, that he's going to destroy the temple. So they're saying that should be punishable by death, that he said he would destroy the temple. There is a verse in John 2, which sounds pretty similar to what they were accusing him of. John 2, 18 starts with this. This is when Jesus had uh, cleared all the money changers out of the temple, that whole scene. And then he's asked by the religious leaders, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Sort of how dare you? How do you have this authority? You must show us a sign. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay? So that's where he's not talking about that actual temple. He knows and he had even um, given some prophecy about that temple won't be destroyed for another 30 years. It will be destroyed, but not for about another 30 years, well after Jesus is no longer physically on the scene. And so Jesus has said this about his body raising up, and that is the sign that he has authority. That's the ultimate sign that Jesus has authority in the temple, over the temple, over all people, over the universe, and everything living in it, that his resurrection is that ultimate sign. However, he had never said that he would destroy this temple. And so you have this whole sham trial. In the middle of the night, at the wrong location, there's a Messianic Jewish scholar named Arnold Fruchtenbaum who details that there are 22 Jewish laws broken in the administration of this trial. That's how much of a sham trial that this was, because these people were more concerned with their power and their uh, like fear of losing their influence over the people than they were actually caring about if he really was or really is the Messiah. And so then Caiaphas, the high priest, starts to get, I think, a little bit frustrated. And it's, you don't answer, and Jesus still remained silent in that moment, even as 
Caiaphas said, like, how do you not answer these things? And Jesus remains silent. And there's even another prophecy of Isaiah 53 that says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And so then this, this scene continues to build and build until you get to this moment of the big question, all right? Now, here's why this is the big question. They've been asking him all this stuff about the temple and destroying it, and they've been trying to trap him for a long time. They've been trying to see what is the deal with this, this person that's making this big fuss on the scene, right? They're, what is going on with this guy, Jesus, and everybody follow, following him? Now, here's what you have to understand about this question. There were many people who had claimed to be a messiah, okay, who claimed to be a deliverer of the Jewish people from their Roman occupation. Now, all these were proven to be false messiahs, but if, so if the high priest had only asked, are you the Christ, which means messiah, anointed one, okay, are you the Christ, if he'd only asked that, that might be able to be sort of discounted as, okay, well, are you one of these false messiahs? However, he also says, are you the son of the blessed one? Now, here's what you have to understand about the, the way that Jewish people would relate to the name of God. Uh, I don't know if you even have seen this even today. It's, it's a still continued tradition today for Jewish people to not say the name of God. Maybe you even have friends that you've seen have, have written G-D. I don't know if you have you seen that before. That's a way of trying to respect the name of God by not saying it. And they would never say Yahweh. Okay, they would never say that. And so what they would do, uh, as kind of with a lot of these Levitical laws and stuff like that, where you have uh, ways to say the name of God without saying the name of God, right? And so you have the Blessed One is a form of that. Actually saying power, sort of with a capital P, what we'd say with a capital P, power, is another, another one of those names of God that's even right here in this passage. And so when he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one, he's asking much more. He's asking, are you the very son of the living God? And so the question is finally being asked that Jesus, throughout this whole book, throughout all these talks that we've had over these last 15 months, he has been avoiding answering this question publicly and explicitly. Even demons ask him, and he doesn't answer. He's, he does healings, and he tells people to be quiet. Don't tell anyone, all right? Don't tell anyone about this. But even though he hasn't stated it, he's displayed it, all right? He's displayed his authority, and he's displayed his identity in so many ways that we've been looking at all this time. Of where he has healed people of their diseases. Where he's cast out demons. Where he's calmed the sea when it was a storm, when he's walked on water, when he fed thousands of people with just a couple loaves and fishes, and then he does it again just for good measure, when he forgives sin, and then even when he raises people from the dead. He has displayed his identity and authority while trying to not state it publicly. But now... In this moment, hours before the crucifixion, he's asked the question. 
And so he gives them the answer. And we find it here in Mark 14, 62. This world-changing answer. He says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a radical sentence. This is an amazing sentence. This verse to me, this is one of those verses to me in the scriptures that is one of those I kind of don't totally know why, but the Holy Spirit just impacts me in my heart, my chest, and my being from it when I hear it. It's, it's something radical is happening just in these words by Jesus. There's a, there's a ton going on in them. Here, here it is again with just a few things highlighted. I'm sure you can kind of start to figure some of this out even yourself. He says, I am. He says, the son of man, which is the way Jesus refers to himself. Three times before, just in this chapter alone, throughout the gospel, Mark, throughout all the gospels, this is Jesus' preferred way of speaking about himself. He doesn't say son of God. He doesn't say Messiah. He says son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And what Jesus is doing in this, this amazing verse is he's actually combining a bunch of different scriptures. And he's combining them into this one incredible answer, I believe. And three of them, and I, I threw on one from the future, so, you know, he was referring to it in future tense. But uh, it's, a, it's a repeat, so you'll get what I'm saying here. Now, I want to show you this because it's, the way that he uses these scriptures is so important. It's so important. It's so amazing. Exodus 3. The people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. Moses has gone out. He now sees this burning bush. And when he sees this burning bush, he, it, it is God speaking to him. And God is telling him to go and help deliver the people of Israel. And then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I'll say to them... The God of your forefathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The great I am, as we have just powerfully sung in worship to him. As the great I am, that is Yahweh, that is the name of our God. And so when Jesus is asked, are you the son of the blessed one? The first words out of his mouth are, I am. And at least you heard in the video, they already started kind of freaking out at that point. Okay, you hear the crowd start to stir as he answers that question. But then he pulls from a couple more verses. Psalm 110.1 is one of these Old Testament uh, messianic prophecies where it's speaking of the Messiah to come and it speaks of God the Father and the Messiah in this same passage with this whole kind of odd poetic thing of the Lord says to my Lord that, that God the Father says to the Messiah, okay, says this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That this Messiah sits at the right hand of God himself, the right hand of power. This is a very famous known messianic prophecy by the people that were hearing Jesus' answer. 
But then we get to the biggie, and we've talked about this one a lot. Daniel 7. This one's big. This is a, a vision that this man Daniel has. And he has this incredible vision. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And so Jesus saying he is the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And that one, it says, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when Jesus says... <laughs> The Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It is this one that deserves this. And it is the one that will be talked about in then in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. All of that, all of that in that answer. Isn't that amazing? I, mean, I hope that strikes you. It strikes me, but of just how much is going on in the midst of this one answer to a question. This is God himself in the flesh being asked, are you? And using all of the just amazing... <laughs> intellect and and just his his divinity sort of pouring out he answers this question with power and i believe that this display of his identity and truly who he is gives us this sense of knowing that jesus is not just some great prophet jesus is not just some teacher that gives us a lot of nice sayings and platitudes and how to be a nice caring person no he is God himself. He is the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. And he will come again. And we will see that in Revelation 19, which is actually what Dave's going to be talking about this Wednesday night. We'll see in Revelation 19 that he does come again, riding on a white horse, coming with the clouds of heaven when he returns. This is our God. And it is, you see even in their response... How they believe that it's much more. It's, it, his response is, is blasphemy. As they tear their uh, clothes, the high priest does and shouts blasphemy. If it wasn't true, it would be blasphemy. But it is. It's true. That this is our God. And then they abuse him though. Then they mock him. And they beat him. They spit on his face. And I think that comes out of their their fear it comes out of their their greed and their selfishness that how dare someone say that the power and the authority is not theirs but that someone other than them has this authority and they want to belittle him they want to bring him as low as they possibly can to prove that he is not this one that the crowds would stop following him and return their allegiance to them but what I think is kind of the, the irony in this whole thing is that while they think they are in control 
while they think they've got him right where they want him, Jesus is in full control of this situation. Jesus is in full submission to his father, but fully in control of the mission that the father has him on. As he is heading towards the cross, he knows that that is where the ultimate victory is won. That our God who is described in this way as the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, a God of that kind of power and strength and might, that God would be willing to be spit upon and beaten and mocked, then whipped and then crucified to take your sin take my sin to take the sin of the world upon himself that power also knowing that that intimate love that sacrifice and care in such a deeply personal way for each of us for us to begin to enter into an understanding of what he went through in this season as we prepare ourselves for heading towards Good Friday and heading towards Easter, where we remember and we celebrate. But let this impact us, that the one that went through all of that suffering is the one who can be described like this, that kind of power. And I believe that it's the presence of this Jesus, this Jesus with this power, but with this intimate love, his presence with us is the only thing that can give us hope and joy and, and uh, strength in the midst of, of suffering and temptation and struggle in this life. That it's that presence of Jesus. That joy and strength are found in God's dwelling place, are found in his presence I've been thinking a lot lately about this, about joy in the Lord. And I've just been really kind of taking this deep dive into what is, how does the joy of the Lord give us strength? And I think that for us to have a, an understanding of joy in the Lord gives us strength. We have joy because we have a God that is this powerful, that is this loving, that is present with us right now. That his presence is here in this place. And his presence is dwelling with every believer in this room. And his dwelling place is now the collected gathering of believers together. That is the place where God's presence dwells. God's presence is here in this room right now with us. The presence of this powerful and loving Jesus is here. And that's where we find joy. We find joy in that God, and then that joy strengthens us in the midst of our temptation, in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our suffering. That's the only way we can get through any of it is because we know that this Jesus is with us, in us, and we can find him even through each other in some sort of crazy way that his presence dwells within us. I hope that encourages you today. I hope that is faith-building for you today, that you know that that presence of this powerful Jesus is with you. And so I ask you, though, that question again, is who do you say Jesus is? Do you say he's 
a quotable guy that feels like he's kind of helps us be a little nicer to people. He's this great teacher. He was a great prophet. He was something, something nice, but no. Jesus says he is the Christ, the son of the blessed one, the great I am. That's who he says he is. Who do you say he is? How do you respond to this today? And I challenge you, if you have never responded to that question, the question of who do you say Jesus is, today is a chance not just to experience the power, but to experience the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the peace and the hope and joy that Jesus offers you today. And so we will have people up here at these prayer points as we sing these passionate worship songs of who Jesus is, I encourage you to come forward and to pray with someone and to confess and proclaim, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, and I need him for that forgiveness of sin. Amen. We come, we come to these stations and we receive communion. We take this communion to remember what that powerful God was willing to do. But I also challenge us now that as we sing, let's just tear the roof off this place. All right, people? Jesus deserves it. He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. I thank you that, Lord Jesus, that you, while being so immensely powerful, were also so willing to submit yourself to what you were about to endure. I thank you that you took the penalty, the consequence, the cost, all upon yourself to remove it from us. And I pray, Lord, that we would respond to that today by confessing and proclaiming that, yes, Lord, you are who you say you are, and I believe it. And then I pray that we would worship you with all of our hearts for who you are. It is in that name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.